Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Marketing Perspectives Podcast. I'm Steve McDonald, your host. And we've got a real treat here because we've got uh, Stefan Hittebrandt, who is the founder and CMO of Dream Data, a revenue attribution company. And we don't have the opportunity very often to talk to somebody that literally is the supplier of all the data that we're relying on on a regular basis to make sure that that marketing activity actually is being attributed to revenue. And so, Stefan, maybe you can expand on that uh, introduction and explain why you call yourself a a revenue attribution company versus marketing attribution and, and, and why that difference. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and thank you. first of all, thank you so much, Steve, for 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 inviting me here. Um, yeah, um, I guess the, the quick story or introduction to 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 me and my career is that I've always been uh, in B two B companies, uh, getting close to like somewhat like fifteen years since I finished uh, university. Uh, it's always been B two B companies, very digital B two B companies, and I've always had a, like a desire to act data driven but probably has all i've probably also been motivated by data as well like seeing that number month on month uh, improve a little bit um but i've also experienced the uh, the pain of uh, doing being in the b2b sphere where things are not always clear and you don't always know uh, what's working and um, if you do things that are too detached from uh, a revenue outcome, you risk running out of money before the uh, the activity that you did uh, yields money <laughs> back to you. Uh, a good example for, of, of, for that was the, the first place I, I worked out of uh, university. Me and, uh, and another guy uh, ran a um, vintage music instrument platform uh, on the internet. So you w- we would get the, the local shops to put up, to create a shop and then put up their instruments. And then we would try to attract the traffic through Google to, to these shops. And we actually managed to, to grow that traffic to a, a six-figure uh, month-on-month uh, organic uh, set of visitors. But we were not able to convince these music shop owners that like they needed to pay us 40 or $60 per month for having a shop where they actually got a lot of traffic to their um, vintage music instruments. And, you know, we just like we had I wouldn't, yeah, great success attracting a lot of search, but we were not able to sell that traffic we were not able to sell that subscription and at at some point we we ran out of money and had to to give up on that project and that was the kind of my first hard-earned lesson about when we're doing business we have to think about how we get money very fast otherwise we risk running out of money and Ever since then, I've been highly focused on my my marketing activities, being able to explain the 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 math, the calculation around I do X Y C, and then I expect this outcome out of it, ideally uh, money. And then, if you fast forward, then uh, ten years from that, then I was lucky to to run into my two now co-founders uh, of my company, who had been getting at this problem of. Uh, connecting the dots, knowing uh, customer journeys, uh, which I think is a simpler way of saying attribution that 
instead of using this advanced word, word we can just say we want to know what happens when we sell. <laughs> That's essentially what we're we're trying to do. Now, before we started recording here, I, I opposed a little bit calling it a, a marketing attribution uh, solution because we we have always called it a, a revenue attribution solution and that's because we want to look uh, holistically uh, at customer journeys in b2b we're not obsessed about understanding one click on a, a facebook ad leading to let's say a newsletter sign up uh, on your website we're trying to understand the full picture. You created some piece of content, somebody arrived from Google, and then six months go by, and then you sell something or you don't sell something. And then we want to be able to replicate the activities that leads to the outcome we want. And in B2B, that's typically, there's typically a big disconnect between when people hear about you the first time and then once they sign contracts. I'm sure the people who are listening to this podcast now might become customers a year from now, but <laughs> they're probably not going to sign up tomorrow just because they, they listen to an interesting conversation between two uh, content lovers. Well, let's hope that you get a little bit of business out of this. For the <laughs> <laughs> because I know what we're going to go over here and I want to get right into it. Um, and that is that you actually did a benchmark study and tell us a little bit about what you learned in that benchmark study that you want to pass on to the CMOs and head of marketing and CEOs that are that are listening to this podcast. Yeah, that was uh, like it really confirmed some of the typical phrases you say about the B two B. So we analyzed four hundred of our customers customer journeys. So we tried to look at the averages uh, of B2B customer journeys that we uh, had insights to. So we generalized the, the data and we could see uh, on average, uh, one of our customers' customer journeys would be from the first touch, the first touch on an account until they win the account. The average would be 192 uh, days, so six months or more. That was the average. And then, of course, there's industries where it tends to be longer and others where it's a bit shorter. But it, uh, I think it, uh, that number really stood out because it kind of like really highlights the importance of thinking uh, long term in B2B or perhaps said in a different way. You need to kind of if you have revenue targets, you need to reverse engineer them by six or 12 months in order to have the kind of, if you have kind of a, a yearly wheel for the sales department, then the marketing department needs to be six, nine or 12 months up front of that, uh, that sales target in order for them to drive the demand that the sales team needs uh, a half a year later. And tell me a little bit about, because you, you also looked at how many touches happened during that 192 average day right yeah and and what did you learn from that yeah we had a, we saw there was around uh, 31 sessions on average uh, on every deal so i think that says also signifies why you can't obsess about one single marketing activity it's going to be multiple activities some will be somebody asking on chat on your websites others will be consuming content on your website and People will be meeting your sales team and so forth. Uh, there's in, to make anything happen in B2B, you need to be very persistent. You need to be constantly present. And 
I think uh, one of the easiest way to like be present with with quality is uh, producing really really good uh, content. So you always have something new that can keep pulling uh, people back to you, whether that's on your website or the content gets consumed on social media. Is that kind of inch by inch uh, game where every time people have an interaction with us, <laughs> on average thirty one sessions that is recorded which means it's probably twice <laughs> off that you just need to constantly be doing stuff to make your B2B uh, deals move forward. So that's a really good reiteration of, as you're thinking about like content planning now, right. And you say constantly. So that job never stops, right. Because no. if somebody's just entering, you know, like coming in understanding who you are and, and it's going to take six months on average to go through that process. We're, we're constantly addressing people at the very beginning. We're constantly addressing people at the very end. Mm. And I called it, and you had a better terminology for this, that today's buyer's journey is more of a, a spaghetti chart, mm. <laughs> right? Can you explain how it's not linear, Right. And that what you found from your data and what's being consumed at all stages of that buyer's journey, mm. what that looks like. Yeah, I think uh, to me, to me at least, I've given up on that kind of uh, fantasy of of a customer acting uh, rational. That's that they would go testify. Okay, I'll start reading your what you define as top funnel content, and I'll be patient, waiting <laughs> three months before I go check your pricing page, and and stuff like that. I think the the customers today they jump back and forth, <laughs> like they based on kind of the the mood of the day. Is it today we do security checks? Is it today we check that we integrate with the right data or? Did you just release a nice benchmark study that I want to consume? So I think there's this constant, uh, the buyer will do whatever the buyer pleases. <laughs> so, and the, that might be going from, let's say, a fourth leadership piece that you would define as top funnel straight to your pricing page to see what is this company doing and probably also booking a demo call afterwards. Or it might be that they've done all this serious stuff and now, they've gotten a little bit bored or they just had other projects. And then suddenly you release some piece of content that is actually highly interesting for them. And that might be what switches them back on to the, the buyer mode, the, the low funnel mode. So I think what we can see is that all sorts of content that can look uh, high, uh, high funnel, top funnel can just as well be something that still helps progress deals as they go very uh, late stage as well. So you're talking a lot about content here. And I just wanted to get from your perspective, you're the CMO of a B2B company, you've worked in B2B companies, you've started this revenue attribution platform. What is your view, if you had to rate overall the importance of content, right? And the importance to the growth and overall success of the business? One, not important at all. 10, it's vital to the growth and success of the company. Mm -hmm. How would you rate it and why? I, if I think about it, like for our own journey, like content has been one of the like key components of, uh, of succeeding, uh, at least to getting to where we are today. Um, 
so we we started out four years ago just three guys uh, two that did technology and then me who had to explain the world what we did so the first task for me was just you know sitting next to my technical co-founders and trying to understand what is this technology that we have how do it work how can i translate that into pieces on our website where i can actually guide somebody and they can get an explanation of <laughs> what it is and then since then we've gone on to use content as a um, as a very important uh, fourth leadership content as a very important distribution channel which we have been we've been submitting um we've been submitting thought leadership content to all sorts of forums and communities trying to you know if they have like a weekly digest trying to make that weekly digest by superior writing and once in a while when once you get into these weekly digest the monthly digest they email all their hundreds of thousands of uh, of readers and uh then we get a big influx of people coming to the website and then more and more people gets to gets to know about us i think today still content remains the kind of backbone of all our uh, marketing activity so the cycle is typically we release something where we have bought it really thoroughly through on our blog and then all of our commercial team then takes snippets of that all the time and post on linkedin uh, afterwards or we can put them into ads or stuff like that. So like the backbone is uh, we have a really good writer called uh, Jeremy, and then he he creates these pieces of content. And then the rest of the commercial team then steals all these pieces and puts in, put them to LinkedIn, to ads, uh, et cetera. So I think the only caveat where I probably wouldn't see content as the main driver is once you become one of these, one of these few household brands where you just know like, Okay, Nike, it's this sportswear company or Microsoft, they do whatever they do today or Salesforce is a CRM system. Then you can probably ease off the, the speeder a little bit on content. But for the longest period, I would always advise people to focus on constantly be, be producing extremely high quality content. And... <clears throat> The way that you answered that was really good because you you told us a story of how you believe so much in content, how you use it to grow your own company. If you were to answer that question for the point of view of a co-founder of a revenue attribution company and the data, those 400, you know, case studies and, you know, the data from the, the companies that are using your platform, how would you answer the importance of content based on the data that you've seen from dream data um, so it obviously varies a lot because different people are are different companies <laughs> companies succeed because they're good at uh, one or two or three things and some have a really great sales department who can do the outbound calls and just get those meeting books and do sale others have a really great product and that's what drives their business but for a lot of companies you know thought leadership and you know organic content that ranks well in google can be a really 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 good driver of growth as well so i would say it if if producing content producing writing is your strong side then you can definitely lean into it and build a really big business around it uh, 
if you're better on the fold and just calling people you shouldn't obsess then the two of us <laughs> sitting here are very big fans of putting things into writing i think about content as a way also also of being i don't know a little bit lazy because put some really good content together and then the people who would then book the demo calls will be a lot better educated once they have the right timing to to work uh, with you and what your company do and then kind of all of these questions that you might have to answer in a sales conversation might already be exhausted because you have already been addressing all these questions through through your website that's a really great answer because uh one of the things you touched on there is that content should be an investment in your sales team right because yeah. not only is that that's really how i think about it well t tell us a little bit more no it's, it's like if you like think about what we sell which is can be a bit complex to explain uh so if we hire young people uh they would have to learn the sales craft first then they would need to understand a bit of the B2B marketing world and they would need to understand some of the complex data technology that is underneath the hood <laughs> as well. And uh, if we are to scale this sales team quite fast, we'll have to hire people that come in with all sorts of uh, knowledge. And if we know that our website is actually already answering all the questions one might have related to our product, we can just focus on hiring people who know the sales craft and uh, are hungry to to participate in in our company because then their website will hopefully have all the rest of the answers yeah it's a you know since marketing uh or content you know all the studies are showing these days that you know buyers are 70 percent of the way through the process before they ever want to talk to anybody inside of the company so content becomes an important part of the sales process yeah. And and what lives on the website is a huge part of that, as well as what you push out. Mm. But and I'd love to have your, your thought on it's also an investment in creating trusted advisors within your sales staff. Because people don't yeah. want to be sold to, right? They Absolutely. they actually want to have somebody that's going to add value into that sales conversation that they can trust that they have that industry knowledge. So every bit of content that you're writing on that thought leadership level has day-to-day -day impact on what the sellers, how they're perceived and what they're able to say. Um, is that, would you say that that's, that's proven out within, you know, the inner workings of your platform and, and what you're doing? Um. I wouldn't say per se uh, as in, in our product, but for our sales team on a day-to-day -day basis, they benefit from us having a high content output. We I, we've, I think about it this way that you should always have somebody from marketing who sits in when the sales team has a weekly sales meeting or, when it, or whether it's a daily or what it is, because you need to use your uh, one-to-many skills to listen to the one-to-one -one conversations that the sales team have with customers all the time. Because if somebody, a potential customer is asking a question to a salesperson just once, I'm sure that there's, you know, 10 more people out there lurking on your website trying to find an answer to the same thing. So you should constantly have this dynamics between catching what is being said one-to-one -one with the sales team or the customer success team. And then think about how can we address this in a in a one-to-many answer 
because then the sales team will know the next time they get that answer or question, sorry, they know that there's a URL that they can go fetch and send directly to the customer. And then the customer will have a great answer to, to that question. So I love that answer. I want to make sure there's time for something that you and I talked <laughs> about before, before we got on the recording here. Okay. <laughs> we we talked about this idea of that this revenue attribution and marketers, there's there's a lot of talk about the data-driven, you know, CMO, right? And and proving that marketing is actually attributed directly to revenue. Mm. And you talked about the notion that using a platform like yours, that you can prove some wins in order, because not everything is is trackable and attributable. But if you want to experiment, you want to keep trying different things. Get some wins. Show your CEO, your CRO, the sales team, right, that the contributions you're making can be attributed to revenue. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your thought about how that leads to experimentation and and then overall success as well. Yeah, if we can just we can drill a little little bit into the problem that B two B marketers are facing, uh, just the context that you operate in. Um, in a B2C world where you have a web shop that sells running shoes, somebody could be Googling Nike running shoe blue, and then they end up your website and then buy they buy the buy the shoe. And that all might happen within 15 minutes or something like that. Then the tools that you traditionally have been using as a marketer can help you understand what's going on. That's your Google Analytics, it's the ad platforms that you buy ads from, et cetera. They would know what's happening in that small closed uh, loop. But in B2B, we're looking at these plus six months. We're probably selling to a buying committee of five people. There's going to be, you know, if not in the 30s, probably in the hundreds of sessions related to like making this decision. And that just means that all the traditional uh, tools out there that are free uh, can't really help you explain what's going on. And the consequence of this is that if one person is starting the research, doing starting the buyer's journey, and it's a completely different person six months later who's signing the contract, then we as marketers can't make the connection between this was actually our activity that started that journey that got signed by a salesperson six months later. And then we'll end up looking like a cost rather than a very sound investment in your marketing team becoming a revenue uh, driving team. And the reason why that is a big problem is that, you know, from crisis, then marketers get fired because they don't have any proof that what they did was actually valuable. So once you start being able to explain the correlations between what it is you do and, you know, the sales pipeline that builds up and uh, the deals you win, then you will get a much more, uh, you can get a much more serious seat at the table in your company because you have these proof that it is us who drive the demand and the sales team that win it rather than it's just the sales team that win some miracle way, <laughs> the customers that show up. And for in terms of experimentation as well, you want to be both inspired by what did we do the last time we won a deal? Can we go out and replicate this idea to some kind of different flair of, uh, of this idea? Or can we do more of that one activity that worked? Um, so there's uh, 
to me at least there's a ton of good reasons for why you should be really obsessed about connecting your b2b marketing activities with uh, sales pipeline and and revenue uh, outcomes yeah it makes perfect sense and you know we're we actually um, are in the middle of a series. We've had uh, five different interviews with leading yeah. B2B CMOs on why do B2B CMOs fail so quickly? Yeah, Because the data, unfortunately, is they have the shortest tenure in the C-suite. Yeah, that's crazy. CEO, right. And a lot of it is because it's very hard to attribute the function of the, the CMO and marketing and its impact on revenue. And then therefore, if it's looked at as a cost center, especially in economic times like we're having, you know, these days, mm. the finger never gets pointed towards sales because you can't get, get rid the of your sales, guys, signed. right? Yeah. yeah. Right? I'm gonna get I'm gonna reduce my what's one of the biggest cost centers in in the business. And so I think having that direct attribution, and then one of the things that you said previously was that if you can show those wins then there's trust in you to do some things that you can experiment on. Yeah. And, and as, as CMOs marketers, we have to constantly, we can't just keep relying on what we've always done. Right. So we mm. have to be experimenting. And so we have to have the faith in the C-suite and the, in the sales team and those around us that we know what we're doing. And your company is an example of, you know, helping us as B2B marketers and do that. Mm. Uh, We've we've covered a lot <laughs> on this on this call. If uh, if there was a takeaway, the most important thing that you would want our audience to understand from this conversation, what would you say that that is? Hmm. I think there's let's let's say, say there's two things. Um, one, you need to constantly be curious about how your company wins revenue. So every time you win a deal, start thinking about what actually led to this deal. Start investigating kind of how can we like tell a narrative that explains how that person ended up in our shop and how, why they bought. And that dialogue you should probably have between both your sales team and your marketing team, customer success team, et cetera. So be constantly curious about how your customer journeys look like. That's the one component. The other one related to content, I would say, my opinion is that the uh, internet is, is drowning in low quality or mediocre content, particularly with this wave of AI stuff that is now coming out. So if you want to stand out in this this day and age uh, on the internet, you need to be relentless when it comes to producing high quality content and thought leadership because there's so much generic stuff out there that doesn't matter <laughs> or we just scroll by and we don't want to consume it. So when you do put stuff out, put it out in, in the highest possible way that you can. So high quality content, thought leadership content, um, I was talking to the CEO of two uh, global companies mm -hmm. and with a former CMO. And it's in our series on what do CEOs want from their CMOs. Yeah. And I think it ties directly into what you just said there. He said, I want my CMOs adding value to the company. Right. And what you're yeah. doing in creating that, that high quality thought leadership content is you are building up the reputation of your brand as an expert that can be trusted in the mm. industry and you're creating value 
Like you're delivering value through your products, through your technologies, the services that you provide. But before somebody is even interested in that, they have to know that you're somebody that's worthy of even being listened to. Mm. That is a whole nother value center that I think is exactly what you're talking about. And it means so much coming from the, the co-founder of a revenue <laughs> attribution company. Uh, we really appreciate your, your insights on that. Thank you, Steve. So if there was follow-up questions that people had, would it be appropriate to give them, uh, put in up with the podcast here, the episode, a link to you on, on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I'm probably spending too much time on LinkedIn. So, so people can just uh, connect there and send me any questions that they, they might have or stop by our website on dream.io and, and see what the product's about. Fantastic. Well, Stefan, again, thank you very much for being on the show and sharing all of your insights. It was a pleasure, Steve. Thank you.